Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I said, good morning, everyone, and no one said anything. And I'm like, Pastor Wayne gets a better, uh, you know, good morning than that. So I felt a little bummed, but the clap is good. Thank you. It's so good to see you guys today. I know while during COVID, we kept saying that the church is not a building, but are you happy that you are in this building with the church today? Right? I am so happy that we can get together, and we can worship God in one place again. There's something about corporate worship that just feeds the soul. So today, um, as Christina said, Pastor Wayne and Lori are just on a well-deserved break, um, and so they're on a little getaway, so I am it. I was hoping that people wouldn't recognize the difference, but I feel like there's enough of a difference between Pastor Wayne and myself where I had to say something. So... Um, Today I'm going to talk about the greatest teacher of all times. My boys, they, they, there's this term, and a lot of the young folks might learn know it now. It's called GOAT, like they are the GOATs, right? So at um, dinner, our dinner table, there are many, many discussions about who, which basketball player is the GOAT. And it's not like the animal, but it's an acronym, the greatest of all times. So two in my home thinks Michael Jordan is the GOAT, and one thinks LeBron James. And I'll let you guys guess which is which. Um, But today I want to talk about Jesus being the greatest teacher of all time. In the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as teacher 60 times. So of the 90 times that the disciples and the crowds referred to Jesus, 60 of those times they called him teacher. And he seemed to always perfect the teachable moment, right? Um, He did it back then, and he still does it today. A teachable moment is a moment where a student is most ready to learn. And if you are a teacher, you might know that. Sometimes we parents use that too, right? It's like when somebody's most ready to learn, that's a teachable moment. Here's a teachable moment that happened to me recently. And every part of the story is important, so listen closely. It was the end of the night in 1995. No, this literally happened two weeks ago. Uh, It's the end of the evening. We're all getting ready to go to bed, and we go upstairs. The house is locked. The dishwasher's on. You know, I walk into the bedroom. Robert's already in there. The dog is in the room. Um, Everything is peaceful. I go to the closet to put something away. I leave the light on. I decided not to put the light on. I walk into the closet, and one of my sons jumps out and scares me. And I am like screaming. I was freaked out. My heart was racing as if I'd just run a marathon. My feet felt like they would give way. I was angry but laughing because I'm like, why are you angry about this? But it was so funny that he scared me like that. But it was the worst feeling. And so as I was replaying this in my head, this was the teachable moment for me. I heard Jesus say, this is how ridiculous the spirit of fear is. You are in a secure place. You are safe. Your husband who loves you is right there. He didn't mention this because our dog does nothing, but our dog was in the room as well. But he said, do you really think something would harm you with all of that? And then he said, I heard. He was like, you forgot to turn on the light, right? 
So everything, like I, my fear, my, the fear and anxiety I was feeling was so uncalled for. I made the choice not to turn on the light. If I had turned on the light, I would have seen my son in the closet. Plus, everything around me was safe. That was a teachable moment that I really had, I had recently. But today, I want to talk to you about a teachable moment that the disciples had with Jesus. And it's found in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. And we will begin. I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you for this word that you have given me today. I pray that you would open hearts and minds to receive this message. And I pray, oh God, that your message will accomplish exactly what uh, your intention is. In Jesus' name. The title of my message today is called Unbothered. So I'm just going to read Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith, he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. Today, we're going to look at this verse. We're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at the disciples. And then we're going to lean into the teaching moment. So a first look at Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We know that. That is what's so amazing about him. Uh, verse 22 says, One day... Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Jesus, fully man and fully God. He's fully God. Do you not think he was aware that this storm was going to take place? I want to suggest to you that he did. Oftentimes we read scripture, and that's great because some scripture is better than no scripture at all. But I want to take you back because some, reading scripture is best read in context. So I want to take you back to the beginning of Luke 8. So at the beginning of Luke 8, it starts out telling us the story of Jesus and the sower, the parable, sorry, of the parable of the sower. And when I was preparing this message, I thought to myself that this storm situation had to have been a test. We have all been in school at one time or another. Some of you still are. Um, and the teacher would teach a lesson, and then there's a quiz or a test to gauge your understanding of the topic. So this is what I think this was. I think that this whole storm experience was a little bit of a test. Um, so Luke 8, we, the parable of the sower is where the sower scattered some seed. Some fell among the path, and they were the ones that hear, but the devil takes the word away. Some fell among the rocks. They're the ones that receive the word with joy. And when they hear it, it does not take root. Some fell among the thorns. These are the ones that hear, but as they go through life, it gets pushed out, what God has said to them. And then some fell on good soil. These are the ones that heard and retained. Our goal is good soil. Charles Spurgeon, um, a well-known teacher, he said that this parable of the sower um, this is what he says. We noticed that the difference in each category was with the soil itself. The sower cast the same seed, 
you could not blame the differences in results on the sower or on the seed, but only on the soil. Guys, we have full control over what we do with the messages that we hear. Okay, so back to um, Luke 8, 22. So up until this time of the storm, the disciples have done life with Jesus. They've heard his teachings. They've witnessed his miracles. And this experience in the storm would really indicate if they knew who he truly was. Sometimes we're led into a storm because of our disobedience like Jonah, and other times we're led into a storm because we've said yes. Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake, and they immediately obeyed. Our commitment to God, our, our call to follow him, our agreement, does not change the fact of whether we're going to go into storms or not. Pastor Wayne is doing an entire series on Philippians, and we see that in the life of Paul. Even though he was committed to God, he went through struggle, trials, storms. Verse 23, we see the human side of Jesus. As they sailed, he fell asleep. Jesus experiences, or while he walked earth, he experienced all the limitations we did. We do. As humans, we get tired. At the end of the day, you're exhausted. And that's what Jesus was. He fell asleep. This is the only time in scripture that we've read of Jesus ever sleeping. And it's not in a peaceful moment. It's in the middle of a storm. Jesus slept. He was unbothered. Part of me thinks he slept because he was thinking back to that parable that he just told them about. And he was believing that his disciples would pass the test. They would do what he had taught them to do. That the seeds that he had sown landed on good soil. Now we're going to look at the disciples. First we see they were focused on the problem. Verse 23 says, A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. This was no doubt a big storm. For those of you who know me, you know that I could be a very dramatic person. Um, I could see like the tiniest spider two rooms over and I'll call Robert and, you know, scream as if the house is burning. If Rob actually left me to myself, this is what would happen to our home. I'll be like, spider, no house, don't need it. The spider's dead. All right, so when I say this was a legit storm, it was, right? From what I've read, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by all of these mountains, and there are ravines that run down the land into the water. And what happens is that it brings the cold air from the mountains down into the sea, and that's what causes the storm so quickly. Like, it can happen suddenly. And so the disciples, some of the disciples were fishermen, so they've been in the sea before. They know what it's like. So for them to be nervous and scared, I want to say that this must have been a storm unlike any other. But the storm was all the disciples were focused on. Their eyes were on that situation. Jesus did not tell them, let us go out into the middle of the sea. He didn't say, let us try to get to the other side. Jesus said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Literally, right there in the invitation, Jesus told them how this story would end. But they doubted and they forgot what Jesus said. What they were seeing with their physical eyes 
overcame what they heard from God and what they knew to be true. If they really heard, remembered, and more so even believed Jesus' words, I want to I suggest that they would not have feared the storm. Next, we see the disciples were focused on themselves. Verse 24 says, The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. This parable is also found in Matthew and Mark. So in Matthew, verse 8, 23 to 27, and Mark 4, 36 to 41. Now, each of, in each of the accounts, the cry of the disciples is a little different. So that's what we're going to look at now. So in Luke, master, master, we're going to drown. They're scared. They're helpless. Uh, this account doesn't even sound like they're asking Jesus to save them. They're just like, we're going to drown. Like they're accepting their fate. They have given up. Matthew 8.25 says, And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So here in Matthew, we see that he also points out that they're going to die, but he asked to be saved. Mark 4.38 says, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And I said this in the first service, men, allow your wives to buy all the cushions they want. It's not biblical, but it's kind. So Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They're not only scared, but they're also frustrated. Do you not care that we're perishing? The difference in these accounts uh, likely represent the different people who were aboard the boat. There were at least 12 of them. I have three sisters, and we all respond differently to different situations. My first sister, we call her the first responder. She's not in the healthcare profession, but she is always the first to respond. So here's an example. Last year, Rob, Noah, and I, we went on vacation, and Isaiah didn't go because he couldn't get time off school. It was around the time of the NBA finals, um, and yay, Toronto Raptors were still NBA champs. So we're in Mexico, and Zay's here in Aurora, and he wants to go down to watch the parade, and we're like, man, you know, he's from Aurora. He doesn't know anything about downtown. He's going to go with our other Aurora friends. Like, they're going to get eaten alive, right? So message my sister. I'm like, hey, Isaiah's going downtown. My sister works in the city. I'm like, can you please keep an eye out for him? So we're at the pool during the day, and literally every hour, we're getting messages on our phones of photos of Isaiah at different parts. Of in the parade. My sister has friends all along the parade route who are taking photos of Isaiah and sending them back to, him, to her, and then she's sending them to us. He, just, he has no clue that this was even happening. This, like, this is the first responder, right? You ask her to do something, and she does it all out. So anyway, there was an altercation. There was a shooting um, that day, and so the um, area locations, they put it on lockdown just to protect those who were inside. Isaiah was in the Eaton Center by this time, so we got a message from Isaiah saying, I'm not Isaiah, because we couldn't get in touch with Isaiah at this point, but we got a message from my, my sister, and she's like, there's been a shooting, I'm not sure where Isaiah is, but don't worry. I'm like, well, that was one piece of information you could have kept to yourself. Okay, so we're like, man, like, what is happening? Anyway, so Isaiah got stuck at the Eaton Center. He was stuck inside of a locked store, right, because they locked down the mall 
And um, my sister finally got in touch with him. She makes her way to Eaton Center, and don't ask me how she did it, but she got inside the locked mall. She found the locked store, and I would want to say that she kindly asked the people to let her nephew and his friends out, but I wasn't there, so I don't really know. But anyway, suffice it to say, Isaiah and his friends were allowed to leave with her. She is the first responder. She acts and gets the job done right away. There's me who needs to know all of the details. So another story. When we were younger, my two sisters, they were play fighting. And one fell on another's leg. And that sister started to laugh and say, I think my leg is broken. And I'm like, oh, it's not broken. Quit playing. She is laughing. Now I know it was like a painful laugh. Like she was laughing because she was in pain. So I'm like, no, we're not. And she's like, no, I think I need to go to the ER. My leg is broken. She's, she's laughing. And I'm like, no, I need to see some tears before we go. So anyway, we got into the car. I was like, and as soon as we got to the hospital, I'm like, are you going to cry? Because we're not going in there until you start crying. So there's me, and I need to know all the details. I need to make sure everything is known before I act. So um, the difference that we see in these accounts are likely because of the different people that the writers of the Gospels were looking to. Like, there were at least 12 of them, right? And it was chaotic. It's a storm. So everyone is calling out to Jesus, not just one person. So in Luke's account, master, master, we're going to drown, we're going to perish. You've got the disciples who are pretty sure this is the end of the world, right? They're accepting their fate. In Matthew's account, they actually ask Jesus to save them. They probably don't know A from B on a ship, but they knew that Jesus could help. And then in Mark's account, you have those who probably knew a bit about what they were going to do, about what they could do. So they knew a bit about boats. They knew a bit about how to steady the ship. So they're just frustrated that they're not getting any help from Jesus. The disciples were focused on themselves. They took their eyes off Jesus. If they kept their eyes on Jesus, they would have known how to handle the storm. Let's look at the teaching moment. Verse 24b, he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. Jesus rebuked the storm and it subsided. Jesus spoke over the nature that he found has full control over. Jeremiah 5.22 says, Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, they may roar, but they cannot cross it. When you serve a powerful God like that, what is there to fear? I want you to remember that the storm didn't wake Jesus. It was the call from his disciples that woke him. He was unbothered by the storm. He did not respond to the storm. He responded to the cry of his disciples. Then Jesus uses this as a teachable moment. He said, where is your faith? He asked his disciples. Mark 4.40 says, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Matthew 8.26 
Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Each of the accounts led back to the same thing. The disciples lacked faith. So Jesus used this situation as a catalyst for their learning, that they didn't have enough faith. He knew that the disciples feared the storm because their faith was lacking. And so his question, where is your faith, was causing the disciples to look at just that. Where was their faith? Even though the disciples spent much time with Jesus, they still didn't understand. Even though he was in the boat with them, they panicked. I mean, did they really think that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would have died in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? You know, sometimes I get frustrated when I read this story and I read about the disciples, but they're just like me. Sometimes I have my eye on the problem instead of on Jesus. Sometimes I have my eye on what I can do instead of what Jesus can do. But I've learned that the better I know him, the more I can trust him. God is in your present storms. He is already in your tomorrows. He is unbothered by your dilemmas. Jesus was fast asleep during the storm. The circumstance that was so consuming his disciples wasn't even enough to wake him up. We come to him in a panic, and he has already figured out how this is going to end. He already, actually, he doesn't even figure it out. He just knows how it's going to end. He sees problems going, and he sees them leaving before we can even wrap our heads around it. Can you rest in the fact that God is unbothered by situations that you're currently consumed by? It's not that he doesn't care about you. It's the storms that he's not concerned about. He didn't respond to the storms, but he heard and responded to his disciples when they cried out to him. I remember reading a story about uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife, and it was, it was an interview that they had when their daughter passed away, and it was a tragic death. Their son was driving into their driveway, and the little girl was running in front of the car, and son didn't see her. Um, and this is what his wife said. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, I don't care whose lives are touched by this story and whose lives are changed or what good comes out of it. As the heart of a mom, I want Maria back. And that's what I want people to know is I want Maria back. But, and this is where it gets good, because of my faith, I know she is completely whole. I know that she's completely whole and completely okay, and I'm going to see her again. As a mom, I have to shift that grief to go. In the middle of her pain, Mary Beth knew, that's his wife's name, that faith, her faith, would be the only thing that would be able to get her out of that storm. So how do you conquer life storms? First, you tell God about it. Tell him how you feel. He can handle it. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your fears. He can handle your anger. We can trust God and feel despair at the same time. That's what Mary Beth, she trusted God, but she felt the pain of losing her daughter. Romans 8:28 says that nothing we can do, no question we can ask will ever be able to separate um, God's love from us. Many times in the Psalms, we read of David in despair, 
yet claiming his trust. This is Psalm 13. It's a really short one. How long, Lord? How long will you, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. But my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. David, that psalm started out in despair, but it ended in a declaration of trust, joy, and encouragement. David was good at that. He feels his feelings. I'm like David. I feel all of my feelings. But immediately he spoke to his heart, and he said, commanding it to turn back to Jesus. He knew his feelings could not be trusted. Next, focus on who God is and his unchanging nature. Hold fast to God's unchanging nature. Hebrews 13:8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he could have gotten those disciples out of that storm, he sure can get you out of yours. Remind yourself of what God has done. Remind yourself of what you know, he, you know to be true about him. The third, remember what God has already done. A friend recently told me that she was in a moment of just questioning God, and then she asked herself, if God never did anything for me, would I still trust him? Her answer was yes. If you feel that God hasn't done anything for you lately, just remember the cross. If you keep reading Luke 8, you'll see that this was the first of three miracles. When they landed on the other side, because they made it, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who became an instant missionary. He raised Jairus' daughter back to life, and he healed a woman who hemorrhaged for 12 years. These accounts are all so interconnected. But the disciples had to make it through the storm so that they can get to the other side where there were people who were waiting to encounter their Jesus. The storms in our lives are written in our stories and God redeems them for his glory. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.